Section 31 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 18. The Formation of the Third Republic. Part 1. The fall of the Commune took place in the last week of May, 1871. We must go back to the surrender of Paris in the last week of January of the same year, and take up the history of France from the election of the National Assembly, called together at Bordeaux to conclude terms of peace with the Prussians, to the election of the first President of the Third Republic, during which time France was under the dictatorship of M. Thiers. Adolphe Thiers was born in Marseille, April 16, 1797. He was a poor little baby, whose father, an ex-Jacobin, had fled from France to escape the counter-revolution. The doctor who superintended his entrance into the world recorded that he was a healthy, active child, with remarkably short legs. These legs remained short all his life, but his body grew to be that of a tall, powerful man. His appearance was by no means aristocratic or dignified, if seen from a distance, but his defects of person were redeemed by the wondrous sparkle in his eyes. The family of his mother, on the maternal side, Lomasa, and was of Greek origin. It came from the Levant, and its members spoke Greek among themselves. Madame Thiers's father was named Arnic, and his descent was also Levantine. Mademoiselle Arnic made a love-match in espousing Thiers, a widower who after the ninth Thermidor had taken refuge under her father's roof. A writer who obtained materials for a sketch of Thiers from Thiers himself says, quote, She pitied him, she was dazzled by his brilliant parts, charmed by his plausible manners, and regardless of his poverty and his encumbrance of many children, she insisted on marrying him. Her family was indignant and cast her off. Nor did she long find comfort in her husband. She was a royalist, and remained so to the end of her days. He was a Jacobin. Moreover, she soon found that his tastes led him to drink and dissipation." This man, the father of Thiers, was small of stature, mercurial in temperament, of universal aptitudes, much wit, and a perennial buoyancy of disposition. His weakness, like his son's, was a passion for omniscience. Someone said of him, quote, He talks encyclopedia, and if anybody asked him, would be at no loss to tell you what was passing in the moon. He had been educated for the bar, and belonged to a family of the haute bourgeoisie of Provence but everything was changed by the revolutionary seesaw and shortly before his son was born he had been a stevedore in the docks of marseilles his father the statesman's grandfather had been a cloth merchant and a man of erudition he wrote a history of provence and died at the age of ninety-five the thiers who preceded him lived to be ninety-seven and was a noted gastronome whose house at marseilles in the early part of the eighteenth century was known far and wide for hospitality and good cheer he was ruined by speculative ventures in the American colonies. Thiers' grandfather, the cloth merchant, was a royalist, who brought down upon himself the wrath of the Jacobins by inciting the more moderate party in Marseilles to seize the commissioners sent to them by the convention, and imprison them in the Chateau d'If. His son, Thiers' father, being himself a Jacobin, helped to release the prisoners, and accepted an office under them in Marseilles. This was the reason why he had to conceal himself during the reaction that followed the fall of Robespierre. But all his life he bobbed like a cork to the surface of events, or with equal facility sank beneath them. He seems to have been, quote, everything by turns, and nothing long, end quote. Among other employments he became an impresario, and went with an opera troupe to Italy. There, for a time, he kept a gaming-table, and finally turned up at Joseph Bonaparte's court at Naples. He became popular with King Joseph, 
and followed him to Madrid. He was a French Micawber, without the domestic affections of his English counterpart, but with far more brilliant chances. His wife was left to struggle at Marseilles with her own boy to support, and with a host of stepchildren. What she would have done but for the kindness of her mother, Madame Arnic, it is hard to tell. Meantime, Adolphe was adopted and educated by Madame Arnic. She had provided him from his birth with influential patrons in the person of two well-to-do godfathers. The boy was brought up in one of those beautiful Bastides, or sea-and-country villas, which adorn the shores of Provence. There he ran wild with the little peasant boys, and subsequently in Marseilles with the gamins of the city. His cousin, the poet André Chénier, got him an appointment to one of the lycées, or high schools, established by Napoleon but his grandmother would not hear of his quote, wearing bonaparte's livery end quote. the two godfathers had to threaten to apply to the absent micawber on the subject if the boy's mother and grandmother stood in the way of his education they yielded at last and accepted the appointment offered them adolphe passed with high marks into the institution and it cost him no trouble to keep always at the head of his classes but in play hours there was never a more troublesome boy he so perplexed and annoyed his superiors that they were on the eve of expelling him when a new master came to the lycée from paris and all was changed this master had ruined his prospects by writing a pamphlet against the empire a warm friendship sprang up between him and his brilliant pupil the good man was an unbending republican when thiers became prime minister of france under louis philippe he wrote to his old master and offered him an important post in the bureau of public instruction but the old man refused it he would not accept Louis-Philippe as, quote, the best of republics, end quote, and ended his letter by saying, quote, the best thing I can wish you is that you may soon retire from office, and that for a long time, end quote. The influence of this new teacher roused all Thiers' faculties and stimulated his industry. From that time forward he became the most industrious man of his age. The bulletins and the victories of Napoleon excited his imagination, he would take a bulletin for his theme and write up an account of a battle supplementing his few facts by his own vivid imagination his idea was that france must be the strongest of european powers or she would prove the weakest she could not hold a middle place in the federation of european nations when thiers had finished his school course his grandmother mortgaged her house to supply funds for his entrance into the college at esch he could not enter the army on account of his size and he aspired to the bar his family was very poor at that period thiers largely supported himself by painting miniatures which it is said he did remarkably well at esch he found good literary society and congenial associations his friendship with his fellow historian mignet began in their college days at esch too where he was given the full liberty to enjoy the marquis d'alberta's gallery of art and wonderful collection of curiosities and bronzes he acquired his lifelong taste for such things Esch was indeed a place full of collections, of antiquities, of cameos, of marbles, etc. Thiers' first literary success was the winning a prize at Nîmes for a monograph of Vauvenargue, a moralist of the eighteenth century, called by Voltaire the mastermind of his period. He won this prize under remarkable circumstances. The commission to award it was composed, largely of royalists, who did not like to assign it to a competitor, who, if not a republican, was at least a bonapartist. Thiers had read passages from his essay to friends, and the commissioners were aware of its authorship. They therefore postponed their decision. Meantime, Thiers wrote another essay on the same subject. Mignet had it copied and forwarded to Nîmes from Paris with a new motto, 
This essay won the first prize, and Thiers' other essay won the second prize, greatly to his amusement and delight, and to the annoyance and discomfiture of the Committee of Decision. With six hundred francs in his pocket, or one hundred and twenty dollars, he went up to Paris, making the journey on foot. Having arrived there, he made his way to his friend Mignet's garret, weary and footsore, carrying his bundle in his hand. Mignette was not at home, but in the opposite chamber, which Thiers entered to make inquiries for his friend, was a gay circle of bohemians who were enjoying a revel. The traveller who broke in upon their mirth is thus described, quote, He wore a coat that had been green and was faded to yellow, tight buff trousers too short to cover his ankles, and dusty and glossy from long use, a pair of clumsy blucher boots, and a hat worthy of a place in the cabinet of an antiquary. His face was tanned a deep brown, and a pair of brass-rimmed spectacles covered half his face." That was about 1821. Thiers was then not a profound politician, nor was he very clear as to theories about republicanism. But he was an enthusiast for Napoleon, an enthusiast for France. He employed his leisure in making notes in the public libraries on the events between 1788 and 1799, the year of the 18th Brumaire. His future history of the revolution, consulate, and empire began, unconsciously to himself, to grow under his hand. He had hoped to be called to the bar in Paris, but as his want of height had prevented his entering the army, so his want of money prevented his entrance to the ranks of the lawyers of the capital. The council which recommends such admissions required at that period that the person seeking admittance should show himself possessed of a well-furnished domicile and a sufficient income. Thiers' resources fell far short of this. For a while he supported himself in Paris as best he could, partly by painting fans. He then returned to Esch, where he was admitted to the bar. But he could not stay long away from Paris. He returned and again struggled with poverty, painting and making applications for literary and newspaper work in all directions. At last, about the time of Louis XIII's death, Manuel, the semi-republican deputy from Marseille, took him up. He was then engaged upon his history, and was private secretary to the Duc de Liancourt, to whose notice he had been brought by Talleyrand in a letter which said, quote, Two young men have lately brought me strong recommendations. One is gentlemanly and appears to have the qualifications you desire in a secretary. The other is uncouth to a degree, but I think I can discern in him sparks of the fire of genius. End quote. The Duke's reply was brief quote, Send me the second one. End quote. In 1826, Thiers began to attract public notice as a clever and somewhat turbulent opponent of the priest party under Charles X. He got his first journalistic employment from the editor of a leading paper in Paris, the Constitutionnel. He had a letter of introduction to the editor, who, nowise impressed by his appearance and wishing to get rid of him, politely said he had no work vacant on the paper except that of criticizing the pictures in the salon, which he presumed M. Thiers could not undertake. On the contrary, Thiers felt sure he could do the work, which the editor, confident of his failure, allowed him to try. The result was a review that startled all Paris, and Thiers was at once engaged on the Constitutionnel as literary, dramatic, and artistic critic. He proved to have a perfect genius for journalism, and all his life he considered newspaper work his profession. Before long he aspired to take part in the management of his paper, and to that end saved and scraped together every cent in his power, assisted by a German bookseller named Schubert, the original of Schmuck in Balzac's Cousin Pons. The Constitutionnel grew more and more popular, and more and more powerful. But still Thiers' means were very small, and he was bent on saving all he could to establish a new newspaper, the National. 
He was engaged to be married to a young lady at Esch, whose father thought he was neglecting her, and came up to Paris to see about it. Thiers pleaded for delay. He had not money enough, he said, to set up housekeeping. A second time the impatient father came to Paris on the same errand, and on receiving the same answer, assaulted Thiers publicly and challenged him. The duel took place. Thiers fired in the air, and his adversary's ball passed between his little legs. Nobody was hurt, but the match was broken off, and the young lady died of the disappointment. Thiers kept every memorial he had of her sacredly to the day of his death, and in the time of his power sought out and provided for the members of her family. Perhaps the most remarkable thing about M. Thiers was the unusual care he took to prepare himself fully before writing or speaking. He had every subject clearly and fully in his own mind before he put pen to paper, and when he began to write he did so with extraordinary rapidity. Nor would he write any account of anything, either in a newspaper or in his history, till he had visited localities, conversed with eye-witnesses, and picked up floating legends. By an accident he became acquainted before other Parisian journalists with the signing of the Ordinance by Charles X, July 26, 1830. He had also good reason to think that Louis-Philippe, if offered the crown of France or the lieutenant-generalship of the kingdom, would accept it. While fighting was going on in Paris, he and Ari Scheffer, the artist, were the two persons deputed to go to Neuilly and sound the Duc d'Orléans. As we have seen, Marie-Emélie, the Duke's wife, indignantly refused their overtures in the absence of her husband, while Madame Adelaide, his sister, encouraged them. Thiers, Lafitte, and Lafayette became the foremost men in Paris at this crisis, and at the end of some days Louis-Philippe became king of the French. He wanted to make Thiers one of his ministers, but Thiers characteristically declined so high an office until he should have served an apprenticeship to ministerial work in an under-secretaryship, and knew the machinery and the working of all departments of government. Thus far I have not spoken of Thiers' History of the Revolution. It appeared first in monthly parts. Up to the publication of the first number, in 1823, no writer in France had dared to speak well of any actor in the Revolution. Thiers' history, as it became known, created a great sensation. Thiers himself was supposed by the general public, both of his own country and of foreign nations, to be a wild revolutionist. At first the critics knew not how to speak of a book that admired the States-General and defended the Constitutional Convention. But by the time the third volume was completed, in 1827, it was bought up eagerly. The work was published afterwards in ten volumes, and the history of the consulate and empire, which appeared between 1845 and 1861, is in twenty volumes, but it is only fair to say that the print is very large, and the illustrations are very numerous, and that the portraits especially are beyond all praise. From 1831 to 1836 Thiers was one of Louis-Philippe's ministers, and from 1836 to 1840 he was prime minister, or president of the council. As soon as Thiers rose to power, his mercurial father made his appearance in Paris. Thiers was disposed to receive him very coldly. Quote, what have you ever done for me that you have any claim on me? he asked. Quote, my son, replied the prodigal parent, if I had been an ordinary father and had stayed by my family and brought up a houseful of children in obscurity, do you suppose you would have been where you are now? End quote. At this Thiers laughed and gave his father a postmastership in a small town in the south of France called Carpentras. There the old gentleman lived, disreputable and extravagant to the last, surrounded by a large family of dogs. Thiers provided at the earliest possible moment for his mother and grandmother, buying for the latter a pretty little property which he had always coveted near Esch, and taking his mother to preside over his own home. 
but Madame Thiers felt out of place in her son's life, and preferred to return to the property given to Madame Arnic, where she spent the rest of her days with the old lady. Lamartine tells a pretty anecdote of Thiers' relations with his mother. The poet and the statesman had been dining together at a friend's house, in 1830, when Thiers was already a cabinet officer. On leaving together after dinner, they found in the ante-room an elderly woman plainly and roughly dressed. She was asking for M. Thiers, who, as soon as he saw her, ran to her, clasped her in his arms, kissed her, and then, leading her by both hands up to the poet, cried joyously, quote, Lamartine, this is my mother. End quote. In 1834, Thiers married a beautiful young girl fresh from her pension, Mademoiselle Donne, who was co heiress with her mother and her father to a great fortune. Unhappily, Thiers had fallen first in love with the mother, but he accepted the daughter instead. The early married life of Madame Thiers was saddened by her knowledge of this state of things. She was devoted to the interests of her husband, and watched over him as a mother might have watched over a child. She was an accomplished woman, and most careful housekeeper, and had received an excellent education. She knew many languages, and turned all English or German documents required by her husband into French. She was also a charming hostess, but she lived under the shadow of a great sorrow. When Thiers was to be married, he paid his father twelve thousand francs, about two thousand five hundred dollars, for the legal parental consent which is necessary in a French marriage. But he was by no means anxious to have his irrepressible parent at his wedding. For three weeks before the event, he hired all the places in all the stage-coaches running through Carpentras to Lyon. In 1840, M. Thiers went out of office, in consequence of a dispute with England about the Eastern question. The only charge that his enemies ever brought against him, affecting his honour as a politician, was that of employing the Jew Dutz to act the part of Judas towards the Duchesse de Berry. But for that he could plead that it solved a difficulty, and probably saved many lives. During the Second Empire he kept much in retirement. At first he had thought that Prince Louis-Napoleon, seeing in him the historian and panegyrist of the great emperor, would call him to his councils, but he was quite mistaken. He could not, nor would he, have served Louis-Napoleon's turn as did such men as Persigny, Saint-Arnaud, de Maupas, and de Morny. When the coup d'état came, Thiers was imprisoned with the other deputies, the only favour allowed him being a bed, while the other deputies had no couch but the floor. In 1869 there was a general election in France, which was carefully manipulated by the government, in order that, if possible, no deputy might be sent to the chamber who would provoke discussion on the changes in the constitution submitted by the emperor. Thiers thought it time for him to re-enter public life and to speak out to his countrymen. At this time one of the gentlemen attached to the English embassy in Paris had a conversation with him. Quote, for a man, he says, of talents, learning, and experience, I never met one who impressed me as having so great an idea of his own self-importance." But the visitor was at the same time impressed by his frankness and sincerity. Speaking of the Emperor Napoleon III, and foreseeing his downfall, he said, quote, "'What will succeed him I know not. God grant it may not be the ruin of France. For a long time I kept quiet. It was no use breaking one's head against the wall. But now we have revolution staring us in the face as an alternative with the Empire and do you think I should be doing well or rightly by my fellow-citizens were I to keep in the background? If I am wanted, I shall not fail." As he spoke, the fire in his eyes sparkled right through the glass of his spectacles, and all the time he talked he was walking rapidly up and down. When greatly animated, he seemed even to grow taller and taller, so that on some great occasion a lady said of him to Charles Greville, quote, 
did you know Thiers is handsome and is six feet high when the fall of the empire occurred in september eighteen seventy m thiers was in paris but when the committee of defence was formed he quitted the capital before the arrival of the prussians to go from court to court to london to st petersburg vienna to implore the intervention of diplomacy and to prove how essential to the balance of power in europe was the preservation of france his feeling was that france ought promptly to have made peace after sedan that her cause then was hopeless for the moment and that by making the best terms she could and by husbanding her resources she might rise in her might at a future day these views were not in the least shared by gambetta who believed as indeed most frenchmen and most foreigners believed in eighteen seventy that a general uprising in france would be sufficient to crush the prussians thiers knew better his policy was to save france for herself and from herself at the same time we already know the story gambetta escaped from paris in a balloon and joined Crémieux and garnier pagès the other two members of the committee of defence who were outside of paris at tours they had set up a sort of government and there in virtue of being the war minister of the committee of defence gambetta proceeded to take all power into his own hands and to become dictator of masterless france it was like a shipwreck in which captain and officers being disabled the command falls to the most able seamen gambetta had no legal right to govern france but he governed it by right divine as the only man who could govern it this is how a newspaper writer speaks and justly of gambetta's government Quote, from the moment when he dropped tired out with his journey by balloon into his chair in the archiepiscopal palace at tours and announced that he was invested with full powers to defend the country no one throughout france seriously disputed his authority his colleagues became his clerks the treasury was empty but he refilled it the arsenal was half empty but in six weeks one great army and almost two were supplied with artillery horses gunners and breech-loaders the lyon reds had been told that they were wicked fools and communists and anarchists ripe for revolt in toulouse lyon and marseilles had been put down the respectables everywhere rose at his summons anarchy and military disobedience quailed the fortunes of war forced gambetta and his government from the banks of the loire to bordeaux there at the close of january eighteen seventy one jules favre arrived from the central committee in paris to announce with shame and grief that resistance was over paris had capitulated to the prussians and it only remained to elect a general assembly which would create a regular government empowered to make peace with the enemy for a few hours that night the fate of france hung trembling in the scales thiers was in bordeaux he was known to think that france could only save what was left by accepting the armistice gambetta was known to be for no surrender which should prevail would the dictator lay aside his power without a struggle gambetta rose to the occasion during the night but here the histories of thiers and gambetta run together therefore before i tell of what happened the next day let me say a few words about the personal history of leon gambetta he was only thirty-three years old at this time having been born in eighteen thirty eight when thiers was forty-one years of age gambetta's birthplace was cahors that city in the south of france stigmatized by dante as the abode of usurers and scoundrels his family was italian and came from genoa but he was born a frenchman though his italian origin temperament and complexion were constantly cast up against him in his infancy he had been intended for the priesthood and was sent when seven years old to some place where he was to be educated and trained for it he soon wrote to his father that he was so miserable that if he were not taken away he would put out one of his eyes which would disqualify him for the priestly calling 
His father took no notice of the childish threat, and Gambetta actually plucked out one of his own eyes. In 1868 he was a young lawyer in Paris, but his eloquence and ability were known only at the Café Procope to a circle of admiring fellow Bohemians. On All Saints' Day, 1868, the press, presuming on the recent relaxation of personal government by the emperor, applauded the crowds who went to cover with funeral wreaths the grave of Baudin at Père Lachaise. Baudin had been the first man killed on December 2, 1851, when offering resistance to the coup d'état. The press was prosecuted for its utterances on this occasion. Gambetta defended one of the journals. Being an advocate, he could say what he pleased without danger of prosecution, and all Paris rang with the bitterness of his attack upon the empire. From that moment he was a power in France. In person he was dark, short, stout, and somewhat vulgar, nor was there any social polish in his manners. Not long after his great speech in defence of the press, in the matter of Baudin, Gambetta was elected to the chamber by the workingmen of Belleville, and at the same time by Marseille. He entered the chamber as one wholly irreconcilable with the empire or the emperor. His eloquence was heart-stirring, and commanded attention even from his adversaries. When on September 4, 1870, the downfall of the empire was proclaimed, Gambetta was made a member of the Council of Defence, and became Minister of the Interior. He remained in Paris until after the siege had begun, but he burned to be where he could act, and obtained the consent of his colleagues to go forth by balloon and try to stir up a warlike spirit in the provinces. He was made Minister of War in addition to being Minister of the Interior. From November 1, 1870, to January 30, 1871, his efforts were almost superhuman, and but for Bazaine's surrender at Metz they might have been successful. Gambetta raised two armies, one under General Aurel des Paladines and General Chanzy, the other under Bourbaki and Garibaldi. The first was the Army of the Loire, the second of the Jura. When the plan of cooperation with Bazaine's 175,000 well-trained troops had failed, and the Army of the Loire had been repulsed at Orléans, Gambetta, with his provisional government, moved to Bordeaux. Thither came Thiers, returned from his roving embassy, a mission of peace whose purpose had been defeated by the warlike movements of Gambetta's armies. Gambetta, in the early days of his dictatorship, wrote to Jules Favre, quote, France must not entertain one thought of peace, end quote. He sincerely believed any effort at negotiation with the Prussians an acknowledgment of weakness, and he fondly fancied that a little more time and experience would turn his raw recruits into armies capable of driving back the Prussians when the experienced generals and soldiers of France had failed. And now we have reached that terrible hour when news was received at Bordeaux that all Gambetta's efforts had been useless, that Paris had consented to an armistice, that an assembly was to be elected, a national government to be formed, and that to resist these things, or to persist longer in fighting the Prussians, would be to provoke civil war. No wonder that Gambetta and Thiers, both devoted Frenchmen, both leaders of parties with opposing views, the one resolved on no surrender, the other urging peace on the best terms now procurable, passed a terrible night after Jules Favre's arrival at Bordeaux, Gambetta debating what was his duty as the idol of his followers and as a provisional dictator, Thiers dreading lest civil war might be kindled by the decision of his rival. Hardly less anxious were the days while a general election was going on. Bordeaux remained feverish and excited till February 13, when deputies from all parts of France met to decide their country's fate in the Bordeaux theatre. Notabilities from foreign countries were also there to see what would be done at that supreme moment. Seven hundred and fifty deputies had been sent to the Assembly, and it was clear from the beginning that that body was not Republican. 
but the anti-republicans were divided into three parties imperialists legitimists and orleanists each of which preferred an orderly and moderate republic to the triumph of either of the other two moreover that was not the time for deliberations concerning a permanent form of government the deputies were met to make a temporary or provisional government qualified to accept or to refuse the hard terms of peace offered by the prussians the two leaders of the assembly were thiers and gambetta the one in favour of peace the other of prolonging the war we can see now how much wiser were the views of the elder statesmen than those of the younger but we see also what a bitter pang gambetta's patriotic spirit must have suffered by the downfall of his dictatorship End of section thirty one